to be done after the, uh, after the sermon. <laughs> Sisters and brothers, our last two Sundays together were amazing, were they not? On Easter Sunday, we shouted our praises to God in thanksgiving for the good news that Christ is risen indeed. It is always new to us each year to hear it. We need it all the time. And we shouted our praises. Then last week we celebrated the history of this congregation. 39 years of worship and service, study and advocacy for justice here in Houston. And we learned from Reverend Elder Troy Perry, the founder of the Metropolitan Community Church Movement, how our history fits into the larger history of our denomination. And again, we shouted praise to our God for calling us out of fear and into freedom and helping us to be able to provide a little bit of a guideline for those who are coming after us. Thanks be to God. Then last Sunday afternoon, you all installed me officially as your senior pastor. I thank you for clapping because I have just felt like this all week long. <laughs> oh, it was a great celebration. Committees had met, you know, and wonderful food prepared and gorgeous uh, decorations were set. My clergy colleagues were eloquent, as were Elisa and Georgette and, uh, and Lisa and uh, Mark and all of the people who participated in the program. And you all did what you all do. You made my friends and family from around the country feel like they were your oldest and dearest friends. That's the resurrection way. Will any of us ever forget Reverend Elder Nancy Wilson's uh, charge to us that day? Whatever your vision is now, she said, make it bigger. Make it bigger. Mike and I did not shout Thanksgiving, but rather have whispered it all week. So humbled are we before the mountain of gratitude that we feel to you and to God for being here. No pastoral family has ever been made to feel more welcome and supported and loved than you have made Mike and me to feel. So again, thank you. So now, dear ones, it's just us. It's just us, and thanks be to God. Because the quiet days that follow the feast days have their own powerful holiness. Our return to routine acts of care for each other, for our neighbors in need to study and prayer, and to this Christ's table are a testimony to the fact that we took Reverend Elder Nancy seriously when she charged us to think bigger. Going back to routine is not a retrenchment. It's not a retreat. It's a going forward into the very difficult and daily constant work that will help us to build strong foundations for the great future we have together. It is our daily walk, our weekly dance, the exercise of our faith that will ultimately allow us to go the distance in the marathon ahead. Now, friends, you all know me. By now, we've been together four months. You know moving is not my thing. <laughs> but I'm going to call you all today to move with me, to get outside your comfort zone a little bit, as I am seeking to get outside mine. 
and, and to move a little, not just in worship, but, but to be a church on the move. Because that's how we're going to get where we're going. We're not going to get there by Scotty beaming us up and dropping us in that grand vision that we will set together over the next several months, right? We'll get there by taking one step at a time. How appropriate then that our gospel lesson for this morning takes us on a walk to Emmaus with Cleopas and his unnamed companion. It was Easter evening, long after uh, uh, all of the events of the morning, but in the same day that Mary had come running back to tell not just what was left of the disciples, but all of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Anybody who would listen to her, that she had seen angels and that they had told her that that tomb was indeed empty, that Jesus is alive. Now something tells me that Cleopas and his companion weren't quite buying it. Something about the way Cleopas speaks in the past tense about Jesus when he says, we had so hoped that he was the one. We had so hoped that he was the one. Even on a short journey, just seven miles between Jerusalem and Emmaus, about the distance between here and City Hall downtown, even, even a short journey can seem long if it's taken at the end of a broken dream. There was a little spark, though. It's a little spizzerinctum of hope in their conversation. Could it be true? What if Mary's right? Should we go back? One of the things I love about this story is it seems that the travelers hope not their belief is what causes Jesus to fall in step beside them. I want you to hear that today. It is their hope that invites Jesus into their presence, not firm belief. What a comfort it is to know that hope alone is enough to merit the companionship of the risen Christ. Now, I wish we had more information about Cleopas and his companion. What sort of relationship did they have? Who were they to each other? Was the unnamed companion Cleopas's wife? Was it his girlfriend? Was it his boyfriend? Was this person a business partner from back home in Emmaus, a school chum? What was their relationship? What kind of a story leaves out the name of one of the major characters, gives you one and leaves out the other? Well, a good storyteller leaves you space in the story, leaves an opening for you to feel that you might be a part of the scene. Could it be that Cleopas' companion was somebody like you or like me? What we do know is that these two people knew their scriptures. Luke says Jesus started with Moses and took them all the way through the prophets, interpreting them to them, interpreting for them the stories that they already knew. They had studied them in Jewish shul. 
They had certainly learned them at the feet of Jesus if they'd been following him very long. They knew the text. They knew the scriptures. And so it was a good thing because God wasn't through revealing God's word yet. Cleopas and his companion would have a part in God's further revelation. In fact, what we now call the scriptures include their names. Well, one of their names. But the two travelers had studied the word that was available to them. And that study, combined with their hope, was the basis for their personal revelation. Indeed, their hearts warmed with understanding when words of the stories were interpreted through the very person of the risen Christ, the Word incarnate. Yet they didn't really see until they came to the table and Christ broke bread. Now right here, more questions spring to my mind. Do they in yours? Why is the breaking of bread important to Cleopas and his companion? They weren't uh, members of the vaunted 12 disciples. As far as we know, they weren't uh, at the Last Supper, so-called. Did they peep in the door of the upper room? Did they peep in the window to see? Or could it be that Jesus knew we would need this image, this metaphor, for life-giving forgiveness and reconciliation and hope so badly that he shared it with lots of people over the years. Could it be that the last time he did it was not the first time he'd done it? Maybe he'd done it for lots of people before. So important was this table to Jesus. I don't know. Neither do you. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. You see, where my study ends, my hope takes over, and Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, I don't care how many disciples were in what room where. I don't care. I just care that Jesus is available to me right now and in this place. My study and hope turn into belief when the living Christ shows up in my life. And I tell you, when that happens, I could run from here to downtown if I thought one of you would listen to me tell the story when I got there. That's how excited I get. <laughs> when Jesus is here, I feel like anything is possible. A quick run back to Jerusalem after a long day? Piece of cake. When the ever-living one is beside and before and behind and beneath me, I not only have the energy for a short hike, I have the stamina for the long haul. And don't we need it? Don't we need the promise of an eternal companion when we think of all there is to do for God before we go to our rest? The writer of the letter we know as First Peter had a revelation several decades after Cleopas and his companion had theirs. He was writing to little churches in Asia Minor made up primarily of slaves. And he was writing across great distance. They were a lot further from Jerusalem than little old Emmaus. But he was also separated from his readers by distance and culture and class. 
And he encouraged those churches by bringing their attention back to the Jesus in their midst. He knew that the dailiness of the Christian walk could be depressing if Christians, as his readers were known by that time, forgot that Christ was inside and before them. Particularly as their bodies betrayed them, as our bodies do over time. Uh, see my boo-boo? Y'all didn't give me enough. See my boo-boo? Thank you. You know, our bodies just, just don't do what we want them to do after a while. All I did was shake the man's hand and I came out with a bum finger. That's all it took. I need to know about something that's imperishable. I need to know what's not going to change. I need to know what over time, whether I am young or old, is going to stay the same and that I can count on. That's what our faith provides us. Their faith, these people in, uh, in these little churches in Asia Minor and ours, were founded not in the old rules and laws that had failed to redeem and had in fact sucked the life out of the people and taken the victory from their shout. The faith the writer of 1 Peter describes is exercised daily and rooted not in rules, but in love. Christ's law is love. Now, doesn't that sound nice? We heard it back at Christmas time. We've said it several times to each other in recent weeks. Christ's law is love. It sounds nice, but it's also kind of demanding. Love has its own demands. Love takes exercise even for us old failing types. If the presence of the living Christ makes me feel young again and flexible and strong, I need to keep Christ close by me the older I get, right? And I need to be exercising the faith that keeps me constantly aware of his presence. Love has its own demands. I was privileged yesterday to take part in not one but two holy unions. So I had occasion this week to reflect on the differences between first love and lasting love. What those two couples did yesterday was promise to take the springtime energy that new love brings and commit to put it to use in a daily exercise regimen that will allow them to look back years from now and realize that what started as a sprint turned into a lovely, companionable marathon with lots of second and third wins this great congregation is due about a third or a fourth or a fifth wind right and Holy Spirit Reverend Kristen will supply it <laughs> amen as a church community we will need spiritual exercise if we are to love each other and those around us as the writer says deeply from the heart. Our hearts, those most overworked of muscles, require daily attention, care, and exercise to keep us physically healthy. And as a metaphor for the place from which love comes, they need exercise too. Our muscles for love need exercise. 
Reverend Elder Nancy, the moderator of our denomination, challenged us last week to look at our vision for ministry together, celebrate it, and then make it bigger. What she was really calling us to do was to love more. To put things that are perishable, like silver and gold, the frailty of our earthly bodies, our finite understanding in their proper place, and to begin to focus on what is imperishable, what will last and last long after we are all gone from here. One afternoon this week, a woman came by here to tell me that she just wanted to take a quick look in this church. Would I let her come through? And I said, sure. Tell me, tell me why you're here. Well, she says, I have had a bear of a day. I had a client that just tore me up one side and down the other. And I just wanted to come back to a place that I knew as a holy place. I said, oh, how do you know this, this church? She said, my daddy was the pastor here when it was Evangelistic Temple. And I said, oh, well, welcome home. And she said, well, tell me about resurrection. So I told her about resurrection. <laughs> and she didn't, have a, she didn't have a whole lot of vocabulary for the conversation. But the beauty of her countenance told me that she meant it when she said, that is wonderful. Could my family come and visit some Sunday? I said, yes, of course. But I thought to myself, hmm, straight evangelicals. That's going to take a lot of love. <laughs> but then I remembered who you are. And I said, sure enough now, y'all come. I trust you if they come in the door. Friends, our food pantry's supplies are dwindling. I suspect that with gasoline at nearly $4 a gallon, your own pantries are a little lean. The one at our house is. Uh, so it'll take a lot of love for us to remember that our pantries are for storing the excess and that there are many, many, many in our community who have nothing to save for next week or next month. Now, we have had an influx this very weekend of cans. I decided I was going to preach about this, even sent the sermon off to my colleagues yesterday so they would have it for thinking about today. And then came Eve Messina with 500 cans from Frank Elementary School. good principle that she is she told those children we can pass these tax tests right <laughs> and they did and they all brought cans with them in gratitude for the all that they had gotten from Frank Elementary School and from Miss Eve I suspect right but uh, summer is coming and before we get on vacation and uh, get away from here, you know what will happen at the food pantry over summertime. Things will dwindle down even more. We were cutting it pretty close. So I decided to follow through on what I'd already put in the sermon. I want to ask you all this week to do a little spiritual exercise. Will you do it? Yes, sir. 
thank you. Uh, I want y'all to reach into your pantry or onto the shelf at Kroger and get you a couple of pounds of something imperishable. Something imperishable. We got lots of cans right now. Get some bags. Get some boxes of macaroni and cheese or dried beans. Or tuna helper, Gemma says. Tuna helper is the need. And, and I urge you on your way back to the car, do some curls with them. <laughs> Honey, just put them over your head. Get excited about it now. Put them over your head. It'll be good for all parts of your heart if you'll do it and next week our food pantry buggy will be out here let's fill it up and let it be overflowing when we're done that's why we're a church we're a church for the everyday we're a church for this community we're going to change the whole world but we're going to do it one step at a time in Houston a church that is actively looking for Christ in its community will be a church on the move. Never satisfied with just those it's already helped. Not content with what's already been learned. Never finished with its praises. But we're not just going to be hurrying from hither and yon. We're not just scurrying around for hurry's sake. We're always headed back to Jesus. We have a source, and we go back to it week after week. Our movements, our exertions, even our quiet plodding are part of our dance with the Redeemer. In this church, some of us roll to the dance. Others toddle. Others sashay and swing. Some provide the accompaniment, the songs, the beat. But all of us have a place at the prom. Some of y'all got left out of yours in high school. Not here. You're always invited to the dance here. This is your dance. This is your party. This is Christ's table, and he says the refreshments are right here for you. Everyone is welcome at the refreshment table at Jesus' prom. So, friends, we're going to be a church on the move. We will dance as we are able. We will dance as we are able. In the breaking of bread and the sharing of the fruit of the vine, we are renewed indeed for the dance. Thanks be to God that even at Resurrection Church, even regular old Sundays like this one, are celebrations just like Easter. Amen? Amen. Amen.